you staying here, we're headed over to John chapter 4. While you're turning, let's just get our minds a little bit awake on such a beautiful, warm morning. Name a chore that kids are forced to do. You were forced to do as a kid. Clean bathrooms. What? Do the dishes. You didn't have a dishwasher? You didn't have one? We had four of them. Tony, Becky, Shelly, and Ben. Yeah. Yeah. As a kid, we didn't have dishwasher. What else? Any other topics? Mow the lawn. What'd you say? Milk the cows. Milk the cows. Oh, yeah. Hey, some kids, not, not me. Not me. Here's what they said. Clean up after the pet. Do the laundry. Set the table. Do the dishes. Clean the room and take out the trash. What things do people do to change their appearance? So what's that? They change their clothing, their apparel. What else? What'd you say? Hair. What they? They grow it. They, uh, they, they change styles, color of hair. What else do you have? What's that? Facial hair. Okay. Anything else people do to change appearance? Braces. Okay. I'll give you one because I can do this. It didn't change the appearance, did it? That worked. Dieting is one. Yes, no. Okay, here's what they said. Get piercing or tattoos. I wouldn't have picked that. Okay, lose weight. Change your wardrobe. Cut your hair. Dye your hair. Name things people often break. Glasses, dishes, bones, promises. Here's what they said. Hearts. Isn't that sweet? Promises, rules, windows, glasses, and bones was number one. What are some things you leave in your car? Keys? I was going to say, when you started with... I'm thinking kids. No, no, you don't want to do that one. <laughs> Keys, what else? Your do- you leave your dog in the car? <laughs> Good, because then you wouldn't leave your dog there, right? <laughs> Anything else people leave in their cars? Money? Clothing? Here's what they said. Sunglasses, flashlight, jumper cables, spare tire, uh, papers, and phone charger. Name something Jesus encouraged the disciples to do. Pray. Anything else he encouraged them to do? Preach. Make disciples. Good. Anything else? Spread the gospel. Here's just a variety of them that Jesus encouraged. And we're talking about one of those, and that is sharing the message in John chapter 4. John chapter 4, if we set the scene, it's that discussion that Jesus has with the woman at the well. And when Jesus is going to have this, con- this conversation with her, it's early in his ministry, we stopped last week and said, okay, this conversation is very unusual. Why? Why is the conversation unusual that Jesus has with the woman at the well? Okay, what's that? She's a Samaritan. Jews don't talk to Samaritans. Any other thing that strikes you? She's a woman. The men in those days, especially rabbis, they weren't supposed to talk with ladies. Anything else that strikes you? Okay, she's by herself. So she's at the well. Not, obviously, not the time the other ladies are at the well. What's that? Yeah, that her reputation was going to put her in a very questionable character. So you have this situation where Jesus is having conversation with her. And in the conversation, Jesus, well, in the whole story, let's put it that way, Jesus is going to be revealing who he is. We know that he has two natures. He has a what nature and what nature? Human and then a divine. How do you know from this story that he has a human nature? What is stressed in the story? He's thirsty. Anything else? He's tired. He's wearied. Okay. And then it goes on later on that he's hungry. So we have those different human experiences. What's, what points out that he's got the divine nature? He's offering what? The living water. And that's where we're going to focus on. Jesus also, what did he know about the woman? He knew everything about her. So he knew all about her private life. And remember, this is an important thought that I just want to reiterate with you. In Samaritan theology, they taught that there was going to be a Messiah coming one day. Remember, they had some Jewish uh, inklings in their theology. Not a lot, but they had some. They taught that after Moses, according to Deuteronomy 18, the great prophet was going to come. He was going to be the Messiah. They thought and they taught no prophets between Moses 
and Messiah. So they're looking for Messiah. And when Jesus says, you know, I know that you know, you've been married multiple times, she responds and says, I can tell you are a prophet. So she's got an inkling here. He's claim, his claim to Messiahship. And then as well, he makes it very clear that he says in verse 26 about that, the waters, and he gives them the living waters. And we pointed out last time, and I'm not going to repeat all the passages, but several different texts in the Old Testament that talk about living waters coming from God. And so he's using theology that makes sense to them, the phrase living waters, they would immediately take that into an idea of a Messiah. So Jesus is clearly fully God, fully man. He also talks about true worship. The hour has come, now, the hour is coming and now is when you worship the Father in spirit and truth. You talked about that last week. Then he also makes it very clear, he alone can provide eternal life. This is a subtle claim, but John brings it up multiple times. In fact, John later on will be the one who records Jesus saying, I am the way, the truth. And then what's John have add what Jesus says right after that? No man. Okay, so John's going to make it very clear. Salvation is in Jesus Christ alone. Multiple times in John's epistles. Uh, in John's gospel, where he's going to say, whosoever believeth on the Son hath life, he that believeth not is condemned already. And so in this text, this is another one of those times, John is real good at doing this. He uses a lot of analogies, a lot of figures. He quotes Jesus a lot. Jesus would use real life situations or objects or events out of real life, and he would make a parallel to spiritual life. Can you think of any? It's a John 3, for instance. You must be born again. Okay, he's taking um, physical birth and giving a spiritual connotation to it, how the child receives life with the mother doing the laboring. Can you think of any other, John has more of them, the I am's the bread of life. He's going to do that in John 6. Any others? Okay, I'm the vine. You are the branches. He's taking John, uh, John 15. Others, other situations. Do, what does he say? Well, yeah, this is this. I am the resurrection and the life. He makes that clear. Can you think of what he says with the sheepfold? Something with sheep. I am the good shepherd. Um, what about where you put the sheep? And how do you block the sheep in? What do you, where, where do the sheep go in and out of? I, the gate. He says, I am the door, that idea that they can't enter any, by any other means. Um, in the, the feasts that they would have, Jesus is there in Jerusalem one day, and they light these huge candelabras in the evening as part of the feast, and it lights up the entire region. What does he claim that night? I am the what of the world. I am the light of the world. So you have multiple different times that Jesus is using this, this uh, phrasing. He does it again in John chapter 4, where he's talking about, I'm the one who gives the living water. So let, let's pick up in some of that conversation. And for us to be able to fully understand, let's try to step back into the sandals of those days. We're going we're gonna to go into... Uh, let's pick up verse 7. There comes a woman of Samaria to draw the water. Jesus said unto her, give me to drink. And she answered, she says, how is it that you talk to me? We have no dealings. Verse 10. If you knew the gift of God and who it is that said unto you, give me to drink, you would have asked of him. He would have given you living water. The woman said, sir, you have nothing to draw from the well. It's deep. From whence the, hast thou the living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, which gave us this well, etc., etc.? Jesus, verse 13. Who Whosoever drinks of this water shall never thirst again. Whosoever drinks of the water that I shall give him shall never thirst. But the water, I'm sorry, I said that I misread verse 13. If you drink of the water, they're going to thirst again. But if you drink of the water that he gives, you shall never thirst. But the water that I shall give him shall be in him a well of water springing up into everlasting life. And that's when she says, you know, give me the water. He says, go and call your husband. She has to make a confession here. What do you know about the water? 
Okay? In, in this story, what he's doing is he is equating the water that he gives, the living water, again, Old Testament concept, coming from heaven, talking about eternal life. What is he, what is he said about that living water that is important for us to note? Okay, what do you mean by that? Okay, it's a never-ending source. Anything else about the water? How long does it last? How long does it meet the need? Forever. Who can have it? How do you know anybody? Yeah, but the phrase, what phrase? Whosoever. Whosoever. Okay? Anything else that you catch in here? Who, how, uh, what do you have to do to, uh, to get it? You already mentioned this. You have to ask. It is, how does he refer to it? Do you have to, it's a gift. Somebody said it? Yes? Where'd you get that? What, what, what phrase or word in particular? The gift of God. Is that, uh, I'm not sure which verse it is about the top. But he calls it a gift of God. And he says it a second time, I am giving you this thing. So when we start looking, we say there's permanent results. This is, this is the spiritual parallels. There's permanent results. Okay, once you get this gift of eternal life, you know, it's not, it's not going to stop. He points out it's free for the taking. It's a gift of God, as you mentioned. It's found only in Christ. If you knew who it was, you would ask him. Makes it very clear. This is available to anyone, as you pointed out, whosoever. Very important topic. Very important discussion that he's having with this woman. She's a totally unlikely candidate to get this water because... It's kind of surprising that Jesus is offering it to her. She, she's what? Yeah, she's, she's a Samaritan. She's a female. And I'm not trying to be derogatory in modern day, but understand back in their days, this is what is written by Jewish writers of that time period. To speak much with a woman is a waste of time and a diversion from study. Woo, that doesn't make you feel great, does it? Another writer talking about speaking to the Samaritans. He that eats the bread of a Samaritan is like one who eats the bread of swine. Okay, did, did the Jews think highly of swine? No, they're an unclean animal. Oh, writing about a Samaritan woman. Put it together. Samaritan women are bloody and undefiled from the cradle. Okay, so there, there's a, it's a really... It's a really derogatory thought that Jesus is offering you know, this to this woman. He shouldn't be doing it. The thought was she will defile him, but the reverse is true. He's doing what? He's purifying her. And so he's offering this, and she's, here she is, an immoral person on top of it, on top of her Samaritan femaleness. She's immoral. And so Jesus is giving her this opportunity for salvation. And what does she have to do? Well, he, before she takes it, he says, go and call your husband. And she has to confess that she has been with lots of men. And it's, so it's before that point that she has to come to that moment. And then Jesus makes it clear, I'm not just limiting it to this person. He is more than willing to minister to the whole city. Later on he makes that comment when he says, lift up your eyes, look unto the fields that are white and the harvest, as all these turban-covered men are coming walking across the field. And so Jesus makes it very clear. Now, you know the stories. You know that when the Titanic was sinking that they had multiple boats. They didn't have enough for everybody. But one of the reasons that people didn't get in the boats is there was a lot of people not allowed. You know, there was, there was a uh, social strata that, not, that the boats weren't going to be for the commoners that were in the big, uh, the big rooms. It was going to be first and foremost for those who were in the elegant chambers, those who had paid more money. And so you have story after story when you read that, when you read its history about some people being rejected and being kicked off, not allowed on the boats. Does Jesus kick off anybody from his offer of salvation? No, no, as long as they repent. The unpardonable sin is not accepting Christ. You know, the conviction of the Holy Spirit and you don't respond to it. So you have in here, you have different thoughts that Jesus is doing. Now jump further in the conversation and catch something here. Let's go down. Um, oh, let's pick up down in verse 
verse uh, 31. In the meanwhile, his disciples prayed him, saying, Master, eat. They, they'd found food. They came back. And Jesus' response to them, I have meat to eat that you know not of. Therefore said the disciples unto him, Has any man brought you? And he said, My meat is to do the will of him that sent me and to finish his work. Just taking that phrase, what does that tell you about Jesus in serving God? Any thoughts stand out? Okay, go ahead, here. Who was it? I'm sorry, Teresa, I didn't know it was you. It was more important than anything else? Okay, okay. So if you start thinking what Jesus is saying here about serving God, I think this is what you're getting. Serving God was a priority to him. Would we agree? Okay, that serving him was more important than even eating, and basically, basically he forgot about his hunger. Have you ever had that opportunity? You're visiting with somebody, you're talking to somebody about the Bible, and then you look down and go, oh, oh my word, so much time passed by. Yes, no? Have you ever had this where you're sitting in a message? <laughs> and you look down and go, oh, my word, I didn't know that this much time. You've never had that experience. <laughs> way back when in some other church yes um, so does it ever happen where you can get so busy at times that all of a sudden you lose track and Jesus is making very clear he says I'm satisfied I am getting satisfied the hunger isn't bothering me and I'm, I have a real refreshment by serving the Lord and not of you know exactly what I mean here's the thought that's going to lead us into our final discussion He is making it clear serving God involves giving out the gospel. It's not the only way to serve God, but is it a a critical way of serving God? Absolutely. Absolutely. So when you start looking and say, okay, what do we learn about evangelism? Jump down, and as we're, when we're reading this through, think, okay, what is he saying about sharing the gospel? What is he pointing out? We're going to pick up in verse 35. My, there, say not ye, there are yet four months, and then comes the harvest. Behold, I say unto you, lift up your eyes and look on the fields, for they are white already to harvest. He that reaps receive wages, and gathers fruit unto life eternal, that both he that sows and he that reaps may rejoice together. Herein is that saying true, one sows, another reaps. I sent you to reap that whereon you bestow no labor, other men labored, and you are entered into their labors." Tremendous. This is a passage often brought up at missions conference times. What is he saying about evangelism? Any singular thought that strikes you from the conversation of Jesus? What about sharing the gospel? What's that? It's a beginning. Okay. Great. Great. Okay. Okay, she was saying that it's, sometimes it's just the beginning because sometimes you're just planting seed and they'll respond later on. Planting seed, is that important? Yes. How do you know that? He that sows and he that reaps are both of a benefit in here. What else do you know about evangelism? Anything else strikes you? The rewards, I didn't see who it was. Anne? How did you get that? For life, excellent. Somebody over here started speaking up. No, yes. Okay, they're rejoicing together. Excellent, excellent. Anybody else? A- additional thoughts. Yeah, and is that okay? Yeah, okay. So we just take the phrase. This is an interesting phrase, okay? Just how he does this. Don't you keep saying there are yet, and that's the, if we were to do it literally, say not ye, there are yet four months. It's the idea. Don't you keep saying there are yet four months until the harvest. What's he mean by that? Let's go a little bit deeper, okay? The process of farming has not changed over the years. There's a period that you have to do what? You have to plant. You have to prepare the soil you plant. Then what happens? You wait, okay? Water, irrigate, you wait, and what's happening during this time period? It's growing. Then what's the next phase? When, when the crop is there, what do you do? Okay, you're going to harvest it. Okay, so you don't, you know, this is the same thing, and he's making the analogy that he's saying, okay, there's different phases, 
okay, that not everybody immediately responds to the gospel. Is that true in your life? Okay. Now, some of you, you got saved the first time you heard it. Some of you, you heard it for different times and different moments that God was working. And so that we can't say, okay, this is the way it works in everybody because some of us, we had seed planted, certain things, and it was the Spirit was drawing, and some of you had to think about it. Others of you, man, poosh, you got saved the first time, the first day you heard it, and you avoided some of that. But when it comes to the spiritual harvest, okay, he says, stop this. Don't get caught up with saying, we just got to sit back and wait. We got to sit back and wait. Literally, he says, stop saying, and that's the word, stop saying this over and over. You have another four months until we can do anything, until the harvest is there. What's that mean? What's he getting at? When he says, stop saying we have to wait any longer. What's his point? The time is now. There's an, what does that say about getting out the gospel? Yeah, there's an urgency. we got to do it. Behold, I, and it's very emphatic the way he says it. I am saying unto you, lift up your eyes and look on the fields. They are right now. They are ready to harvest. The, the heads, as people are bobbing, coming out of the city. He's looking, he's saying, this, this is ready to go. So in other words, what he's saying, I want all of you. I want all of you involved in sharing the gospel. In some facet, you can be planting, you can be harvesting. But you've got to be involved. This is serving God, getting involved with the gospel. It is not limited to a single season, okay? We can harvest when we have VBS. We will harvest when we do a neighborhood night. No, no, no. It's supposed to be done on a continual basis. The spiritual harvest isn't like our calendar that it happens in the fall. This is, uh, this is all the time. We're not to relax and wait for another season before we get involved with it like we would in the farming. The time is now, not later. Spiritual seed can produce fruit rather quickly. We go a little bit further. Per Jesus, this is a great task. My meat is to finish the job that I've been sent. It's an enormous task. Where he talks about men are laboring. He's talking about the fields being white already. It's a task that any one of us can be, plant, uh, be involved in at different degrees, where we're planting or where we're laboring. It calls for teamwork, Okay, the idea that we're not doing this all by ourselves, but we're working together to get out that gospel. It's a rewarding task, as well as I mentioned, in this life and then in the next, receiving the life eternal. So when we do it, when we come down to it, he is saying every one of us should be involved in an aspect of giving out the gospel, actively engaged in it. Now the question has to come back, are you, am I? Okay, are we actively involved? And so we want to be partnering with Jesus in getting the gospel. So what do we do? Looking at the, what happens here, the woman becomes a witness that very day. If, if you follow the rest of the story, the woman becomes a witness that very day. She's just heard Jesus, just met him, and she's already witnessing. What does she do? How does she, how does she explain theology to, to different people? Look, look at the rest of the story. Okay, and it goes on and it's, well, we'll back up. We'll back up to verse 28. The woman left her water pot, went her way into the city and said unto the men, come and see a man which told me all things that ever I did. Is not this the Messiah? They went out of the city and came unto him. Then he says, lift up your eyes. And many, verse 39, of the Samaritans of that city believed on him for the saying of the woman, or because of it, which testified, he told me all that I ever did. What, what was her simple theology? What did she talk about? What's that? He, he knew all about me. Yeah, he, he told me the things that I'd done. And so she, in her witness, she's, even though she's new in her faith, even though she had a bad background, even though she's a sh- social outcast, she doesn't use those excuses. She's saying, okay, I want to tell somebody. She just gives her testimony. It, it's almost like the man, remember later on in chapter 9, where the man says, once I was blind, but now I see. And he doesn't know any, a whole lot more. But he tells what he knows by talking about what Christ has done for her and what he knew about her. So it's really interesting. And no matter who you are, okay, here's the story. We, we should probably do it backwards. Anybody know who Edward Kimball is from history? Anybody know who he is? He's a Sunday school teacher. 
that he was, that he, that's all he was, just a normal clerk, I think, and I'm thinking in a shoe store, that he was a clerk. But he was very concerned about the kids, so he would every week try to revisit these kids that he had contact with and encourage them to come back to Sunday school. And he shared the gospel with one of those kids, and the kid responded. D.L. Moody. Ever hear of D.L. Moody? Okay. D.L. Moody ends up going into ministry. Tremendous evangelist. In his ministry, F.B. Meyer gets saved. Any of you ever read anything by F.B. Meyer? If you get a chance, read some of his stuff on, on walking with the Lord. It's really good. So he gets saved in, under the preaching of D.L. Moody. Under his preaching and teaching, J. Wilbur Chapman, anybody hear of him? He was an evangelist, an American evangelist. He got saved in an F.B. Meyer preaching service. And J. Wilbur Chapman was preaching, Billy Sunday gets saved. Anybody ever hear of Billy Sunday? Okay. And in a Billy Sunday campaign, a fellow by the name of Mordecai Ham gets saved. And Mordecai Ham is preaching, and in one of his revival meetings, you ever hear of Billy Graham? He got saved. Okay. So where do the rewards go? Who, who started this whole thing? A shoe salesman. Okay, a guy that, that, just a normal Joe, and he, through his ministry, it just followed generation after generation of people responding. So you can't say, who am I? God can use you to impact somebody who can impact somebody who can impact. That's the beauty of the gospel. It exponentially spreads if we keep it going, if we don't stifle it. And so Jesus then, he's got this message going. He's got the disciples. But then later on, a few months later, the disciples stop a guy from ministering. Do, do you remember when at the, uh, the situation? What was the guy doing that they told him, you got to stop? Anybody remember this? He's casting out demons. And, and the disciples come back to Jesus and they say, we stopped him. Why? Anybody remember why they told him he can't do it anymore? I hear a couple, some rumbling. Somebody want to pipe up? Because he was not one of us. He wasn't with us. Therefore, we stop him. Okay, let's pick up the story. Let's jump over to Luke, Luke or, or Mark. You take your pick. They're both chapter 9. I'm going to head to Luke 9. Luke 9. Let's set up the scene, and let's do a little bit of exploration here. And this isn't too much longer after he's preached and said, hey, lift up your eyes. But there's a few things that happened. So if I'm, again, I'm going to Luke 9. You've got to set the scene. The scene is really important to how it just unfolds. So if we're in Luke 9 and we start with the setting, the, the whole story. Now, if you just, do, any, do you have paragraph headings? Yes, no? It'll be harder if you don't. But if you have paragraph headings, you'll see what I mean real quickly. That Jesus is going to do a number of deeds. So when we start looking at it, we start saying, okay, Luke chapter 9, where he starts writing about the story, he's going to say, okay, here's what Jesus did. Luke chapter 9, starting verse 1, he called the 12 together, gave them power and authority to do what? What's he want them to go and do? Cast out the demons and to cure diseases. And what else goes with it? The next verse. They're not supposed to just do miracles. They're supposed to carry a message. They're supposed to preach, okay? So understand, miracles aren't in and of themselves the end of the thing. All the miracles were to do was to be, be a flag, waving and saying, hey, listen to what I'm saying. Hear what I'm going to say. The message was far more important. So he sends them out. They go out. And he has them going out and preach and gives them the power to do it. And they're supposed to be preaching the kingdom of God. Then what happens is they come back, they tell him what's going on, and when they come back, what happens is he, the people are following. There's crowds following him. And we get the story where Verse 11, he's trying to pull the disciples aside privately, but the crowds come, and by the end of the day, there's thousands of people, and he says to the disciples, hey, we got to feed these people. And the disciples' response is they don't understand. They want him to send the people away. And Jesus says, verse 13, give them to eat. And they say, hey, wait a minute. We don't have all kinds of food for 5,000 men plus uh, ladies and kids. 
And Jesus says in verse 14, he said unto the disciples, make them to sit down by fifties in a company. They did so, and he made them all sit down. And he took the five loaves, the two fishes, looking up to heaven, he blessed them, gave them to the disciples, and set five loaves, two fish, set them before the multitude. And what happens? They all just patiently sit there and watch just a handful eat. No. What's it say? The next verse. They did all eat until when? Until they're full. Okay? They're full, and then they even have leftovers. So Jesus performs this miracle. Okay? And then what happens is Jesus, then he gets aside with the disciples, and he talks, and he says, whom do men say that I am? Which is an important question. But more importantly, he asks the disciples, who do you think that I am? Okay, and they make their proclamation, you are the Christ. And then that's when he says, okay, that's great. You're the Christ, the Son of God. And right after they say you're the Christ, what does he tell them? He tells them something important that's going to happen to him. He's going to be killed. He talks about his suffering. Okay, in the next, in verse 22, that he's going to go to Jerusalem, he's going to end up dying. If you had to summarize, okay, his what motivated Jesus to get out this message? What motivated Jesus to feed the people? What motivates Jesus to say, I'm going to die for sin? For God so loved the world. Okay. Here in the passage, okay, what does it say about Jesus? He's the essence of compassion. So you have Luke 9 building up. He is the God of love, the God of love, the God of love, showing it time and time and time again. Watch the scene as it keeps on unfolding. And then the next big event is he tells them, okay, um, in the next few verses he says, okay, you want to be a disciple, you need to be sacrificial, you need to care for other people. And he takes some of the disciples up on the mount, Peter, James, and John. And what happens when they're on the mountain to pray? What What happens to Jesus? He's transfigured. All of a sudden they see his glory, his wonder. And they want to stay up there. And he says, no, no, we have ministry to do. And so they come down, and when they come down from the mountain, okay, what, ha- what do they run into? They run into the other disciples who are having a problem. Do you remember what the problem was? A man brought his boy for them to cast out what out of the boy? Cast out demons. Could they cast out demons before? The beginning of the chapter. The beginning of the chapter. He sent them out to do this and to preach a message. But now they can't cast out the demons. And then when Jesus comes down and he sees that the disciples are being really verbally attacked, he intervenes. And what does Jesus do for the, to the boy? He casts out the demon. And then the disciples say, why couldn't we cast out demons? And Jesus makes that tremendous comment, except by prayer and fasting. You can't just rely on your success. You've got to be dependent in the prayer and fasting. And so Jesus then, he points out their weakness in prayer. How does everybody respond? In verse 43, how does, how does everybody, the disciples, how does the crowd, how does the man respond? What does your Bible read? They're amazed at what? The mighty power of God. But while they wondered every one of these things, Jesus says unto unto his disciples, and he repeats again, I am going to suffer. And I'm doing this basically because I really care. And so here he is. They know who he is. They know what he is. And they're having this experience that they're being confronted time and time again by his greatness. And yet... They have some weakness. Go to verse 46. What would you identify as their spiritual, their, their, their weakness within them? What's their battle? Verse 46. Pride? How so? They want, they're arguing over who what? Who's the grace? Now, now remember, what was Jesus through this whole chapter, what is he the essence of? Compassion. Compassion. What are the disciples focused on? Themselves. Themselves. So we would say, okay, they're arguing of who's the greatest. Verse 49. What's their, what's their struggle now? 
This is a text we started just mentioning at the very beginning. They say, we saw one casting out devils in your name, and we forbade him because... Okay, so what's their weakness? Jealousy? Okay, what... Power? Well, that's a good way of putting it. Yeah. That's a good way of putting it, that they were just, they were jealous of, of their own abilities and powers, and they prohibited somebody else doing it who wasn't of their group. Verse 51. The chapter starts with compassion, it ends with battles here. What, what do they want to do in verse 51 down through 50, whatever it is, 54? They remember they say, we want, we want to get a place to stay, but they don't want Jesus to say. So what do the boys want to call down? The sons of thunder, what do they want to call down from heaven? They want to call down fire to judge the people who weren't hospitable. Well, that's, a, that's an interesting way. You know, if you, don't, if you don't house Jesus, we're going to burn you up. Okay? And so what you have is they're wanting to call down fire. Now, Jesus has already told them, if people persecute you or criticize you, how are we supposed to respond? Bless them that persecute you. He's already told them that. They've heard this. He's demonstrating patience and compassion. But where are they? They're still battling with it. By the way, there go I. Do we still battle with those things? Okay, so Jesus is this essence of compassion. They're just the opposite. And so Jesus then reiterates down in verse 55, you know not what manner of spirit you are. And then he, then he reiterates the, the great example. The Son of Man is not come to destroy, but to save people. So he reiterates, I've come to show compassion. I'm not destroying people. You have to have this attitude where you want to reach out to people. He's already preached this message. He's told them this. He's given them that, all this information already, but they're really battling with it. So let's focus in on the middle thought. Forbid them not. He's going he's gonna to rebuke them. And I want you to just catch with me a few thoughts. Literally, he says to them, when we're jumping back in verse 50, literally it reads, stop. Stop forbidding. It's almost as if they did it once, twice, and they still have this attitude in their heart. We forbade him from doing it. And Jesus is saying, you've got to stop this. You've got to stop this. And people today have taken this little text and they have run into a whole different realm that Jesus never intended. It, it's almost like on Wednesday we were talking in our Bible study how um, he says in the Sermon on the Mount, if anybody, if anybody slaps you on the cheek, what do you do? Okay, and people have run crazy with that to say we shouldn't have police officers, we shouldn't have military, we, and they've run to pacifism. That's not what Jesus was teaching at all. If you were here Wednesday night, you would have heard the explanation how the folk together came to the right conclusion. This is one of those texts that people grab and they run with it. And they create some different thinking like this. We should tolerate and accept all kinds of doctrine and religious teachings. We should never stop anybody because as long as they're sincere. Did Jesus ever teach that? Or did he rebuke false teaching? He rebukes it. He rebukes it royally. We should never confront an erring brother or sister. Jesus was saying, stop correcting somebody. Really? What does he say in Matthew 18? If somebody has ought, go and talk with them. If they don't come to resolution, what are you supposed to do? Take somebody with you and go and talk to them again. That's not what he's saying. That's not what he's saying. Some say we should never critically evaluate or discern what we're being taught or told. Basically, anything goes. Whatever somebody comes in, as long as they use the name of Jesus, we should just accept anything and everything and never stop them. Really? Really? Do you remember in Matthew chapter 7 where Jesus says that they will even claim, I have prophesied and done miracles in your name, and yet he's going to say, depart from me, you workers of iniquity, I never knew you. Okay, so we, we know this can't be what he's getting at. If we were to just go back just a few chapters to chapter 7 of Matthew, and it's worth our time, just to make sure you're understanding. Matthew 7, do you remember what Jesus says at the end of the Sermon on the Mount? He makes very clear. Matthew chapter 7, if, you, if you've got a Bible, flip there. 
And he says, and I want to read this together, okay? You follow along as I read it. Where Jesus is talking, and he's not just the 12, he's talking to the thousands of Jews that are present at that time at the Sermon on the Mount. And he says, verse 15, Beware of false prophets, which come to you in what type of clothing? Sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravening or ravening wolves. You shall know them by their fruits. Do men gather grapes or thorns or figs of thistles? Nah. Even so, every good tree brings forth good fruit, but a corrupt tree brings forth bad fruit, evil fruit. A good tree cannot bring forth evil fruit. Neither a corrupt tree can, it can't bring good fruit. Every tree that, tree that brings forth not good fruit should be hewn down, cast into the fire. Wherefore, by their fruits shall you... Okay, so in other words, you have to be a what? You've got to be a fruit tester. You've got to examine people. And then that's when he goes on. He says, not everyone that says unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven. So very clearly, he's not saying let's not discern. He's not saying let's not be careful. What he's talking about is this idea of what the disciples were doing that they, they you know, uh, oh, I, and I have several passages here just to, just to make sure that we understand. The New Testament clearly says that there's moments we need to rebuke. We need to challenge. We need to even at times separate from people who are going erroneously. That's not what this text is saying, that we should just tolerate. He even says, hey, anybody who bears the name of brother, but they're involved with something that's wrong, you got to be careful. you got to avoid. you got to rebuke. you got to even warn them as a brother. We read where Peter um, and Paul, when Peter wouldn't even eat with the, with the Gentiles, Paul withstood him face to face. And, and rebuked him openly uh, because of his prejudice. And you got to check out teachers. you got to check out what I'm saying. You can't just believe it because I'm a nice guy. Number one, I'm not a nice guy. Number two, you've got to go by the Word of God. The Word of God, very clear, you've got to see if the Scriptures, you've got to make sure that you are examining the Bible. It just time and time and time again it calls for this, that, that Jesus is saying, okay, let's be discerning. So if that's not what he's talking about, then what is he driving at? What is he telling the disciples? No matter who we are, we all need to work at, I think this is a lesson, uh, work at avoiding a critical spirit. I am so glad I don't struggle with a critical spirit. God has elevated me above where I never think poorly of somebody. That's a lie. That's just not true. Who battles with a critical spirit? Every one of us. Every one of us, the disciples who were closest to Jesus, had this battle. So what we need to do is we need to be very, very careful. Now, what constitutes a critical spirit? Maybe we'll be, if, if we look at how the disciples acted, that'll help us get insight of what type of spirit Jesus would say is offensive. If, if you were to just evaluate and say, okay... John and John said, We saw one casting out devils in thy name. We forbade him because he follows not us. What is a, what is, what, what is a critical spirit there? What constitutes a critical spirit? What's that? Yeah, okay. So what do, from, our, from the disciples' point of view, you either be one of us or you're no good. Okay. How about this? How about making a quick, rash judgment after very little contact? Would you, would you agree that that's what happened in this text? They didn't know much about him. They don't even give a name. But they're very quick to judge. Isn't it good that none of us ever do that? Hey, what about this? Do they have all the facts? They really don't. They don't know a whole lot. They base their judgment upon themselves as the standard. Wow, wow, does that ever happen that we consider ourselves God's standard for others? That's a dangerous spot, okay? They're done with an attitude of superiority and authority that one does not possess. They didn't have that authority. They're critical over things. Do you remember the setting? They're stopping the man doing something that they were supposed to do, but what happened? They couldn't do it. Where they failed, they found fault in others. And so that, that, you know, you look and say, okay, that critical. I'm not saying a discerning spirit. Are we supposed to be discerning? 
Yes, no. Oh, yeah, we have to evaluate. But our evaluation, not to become offensive, we've got to get facts. We've got to make sure that we're not making ourselves the standard, but rather the Word of God for what is right, what is wrong. And so we take it together, okay? And you now, knowing what you have from this text, what do you know about the man? Okay, I'm, I'm, I'm not trying to be deep and profound. Just what do you know about this guy from just what they said? He's got an ability to cast out demons. What else do you about that? He's doing it in Jesus' name. What were you going to Somebody over here? Okay, yeah, he's, he does cast out in Jesus' name. Anything else? What, what don't you know about the guy? We, we don't know where he's from. We don't know if he's one of the group that's been following, but it makes clear he's not one of the 12 at least. And he pr- seems to be an outsider. What, what's his name? We don't know. We don't know. So we don't know who it is. He's, he's different than the 12, but remember Jesus did have crowds following him at times. Okay, in John chapter 6, great, great crowds will depart. Okay, it was done in Jesus' name, not his own. Therefore, he's obviously trusting in Christ to some degree that he's doing it. Jesus had given other disciples beyond the 12 this ability. You can check the text. There was a time when he sent out 70, okay, that went out and they were doing it. Um, irony, and that, to me this is where it really rubs, this is exactly what the 12 couldn't do, that they were upset, but this man is doing. It just smacks of jealousy, just a jealous spirit. And so the purpose of this is to present, uh, the purpose of any miracle was to present the gospel. And so Jesus makes it clear, he says, forbid him not, he that is not, what do you have in verse 50? This is very important, the phrase. He that is not against us is what? Okay, he's for us. So obviously Jesus knows more about this guy that this guy's got to be for Christ. He's got to be with and on the side of Jesus to some degree. So Jesus, you know, the man's doing something that they couldn't do. Jesus wanted him to do it. The, str- the 12 strongly forbade him to doing it. And so let me just wrap up this today. Why is this critical spirit so offensive to Jesus? Because what it does. Watch. It hinders, this type of spirit hinders the spread of the gospel. Jealousy, critical spirit amongst believers hinders the spread of the gospel. Because we get so wrapped up in us that we forget the bigger message here, the bigger lesson. So stop forbidding him, okay, because he that speaks evil, I expanded upon. The man was promoting Christ in the message. The second reason it's so offensive, it hinders the opportunity to work together. What had we just heard from the woman at the well? Giving out the gospel, some do what? Some sow the seed, some water, some are going to do the harvesting. There's all different facets of it. And this guy is saying, hey, he, you're, you're, you're destroying team effort by your jealousy, by your critical spirit. And he makes that other comment, he that is not with me is against me. In fact, later on he'll say, he that is not with me, he scatters. Um, so, it, and this is a truism. I'm not talking a discerning spirit. We're talking a critical spirit. It, it forms a spirit of sectarianism. In other words, I'm right... And unless you're with me, you're wrong. And that's just dangerous. Okay, destroys unity amongst believers. Number three, because such a spirit hinders the opportunity for future reward. That same idea that we've talked about, that this spirit is is, uh, giving out the gospel, you're going to be rewarded. So you and I need to say, hey, we got to be careful because we can discourage somebody else from serving God by being critical of them and how they're serving God. Because they don't do it the same way I do. Therefore, we can criticize them, and we can destroy and keep them from serving the Lord in the future. So stop forbidding him, because he shall be rewarded no matter what his good, even if it's very small. That idea from nine, chapter 9 of Mark, where he says even if they give a cup of water 
something small is something that Jesus is going to be approving of. Critical spirit, it hinders your obedience. This should be number four. It hinders your obedience to Christ where he has already commanded them in the passage before. And it's interesting the way it is unfolding just before these accounts. Jesus takes the child, puts the child in their midst. Look at verse 46. They were reasoning who should be the greatest. He perceiving said, whosoever shall receive this child in my name receives me. Jesus is making it clear we are to be open to all, serving others who are believers. He's just told them that. And they come back and say, well, we stopped somebody. We, we didn't receive that person. Violation of what he just told them. So you've got to be very careful. And I'm thinking to myself, how is it that we get caught up in it? We get caught up here in our church. We've got caught up in the past over being critical of some have their kids in different schools, different Christian schools. It was an issue years ago in our church. It became very divisive. You know, I have my kid in this Christian school, I have my kid in this Christian school, and all of a sudden it became, a, you know, you're not good, you're not as good of a Christian because you don't have them in this school. How, how foolish on our part. When we set up personal standards, and if you don't have my personal standard, you're not godly. Uh, we, we've run into this where we've had people in, in teaching capacities that they teach differently than others. Some of you would like when you, the way you learn. Well, let me rephrase this. Do some of you take notes? Yes, no. Take notes when we're speaking. Anybody do it? Some of you, by raise a hand, you, you don't take notes. You, you listen just as well or better without notes. Who's right? Who's more spiritual? What? Okay. But I've heard that become a discussion. Unless you take notes, you're not, you're not godly. Really? Some people teach different too. Some people, they've learned visually. Some people, they don't need that. Someone they teach, it's, it's a variety. You can't, be, you can't be going in and saying, well, because they didn't teach the way I taught, they're no good. Well, you're not the standard. The standard is use your gifts for the glory of God and the way that God has gifted you to do it. So there's, there's so many different ways. You know, unless you witness the way I witness and you use these verses, you're not doing a good job. Uh, what? You're giving out the Word of God. Give out the Word of God. Give your testimony. Give out Scripture. And let God use the variety that happens within the body of Christ. So we want to be careful. We want to be discerning. But keep this in mind when it comes to being critical. Here's a fact of life. They've never built monuments to critics. They've never done it. They've built the monuments to people who have taken the risk and suffered the criticism. Suffer the risk of criticism Keep serving the Lord. Okay, let's pick up. See if you can wake yourselves up and be ready for a message, okay? Thank you.